Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The 11 to 1 Show. Mary Lavin was a pioneering female short story writer and novelist from Bechtive County Mead. She's one of Ireland's greatest writers, boldly tackling feminist issues and concerns in her work at a time when the Catholic Church was a domineering force in Irish society. Beginning this week, Blood in the Alley Theatre Company is introducing their groundbreaking production entitled Bringing Mary Lavin to Life in the Middle of the Fields. It's touring Dublin, Cork and Mead and I'm delighted now to be joined on the line by one of Mary Lavin's relatives. She's a talented writer in her her own right, author of four novels, the latest entitled The Home Scar. Granddaughter of Mary Lavin, Kathleen McMahon is on the line with me now. How are you getting on, Kathleen? I'm great, thank you. I'm delighted to join you for this to talk about this amazing production, yeah. Yeah, great to have you. Now, we had this conversation on the show the other day because apparently Granny is now dying out, right? It's all Nanas and Nonies and all these other names for grandparents. But I'm curious, what did you call Mary? Did you call her Granny or Nana? Oh, Lord, no. We would never have been allowed to call her granny. It was kind of a joke. She was strictly grandmother. She was a woman who had notions, you know, as as, as a girl who was born as the daughter of the estate manager in Bective House. I mean, it was that was not their house. Um, they were hired to run. Her father was hired to run the place. Yeah. But she did have notions and uh, granny would never have been allowed. We were We were told to call her grandmother. Um, which was, but she had a sense of fun as well. So we were allowed to abbreviate that to Mud. Mud? Mud or Mud. So actually the family name for her was Mud, um, which kind of shows everything about her personality. She was unconventional, but she was fun. Um, And, you know, things were the way she wanted them to be. She was quite particular. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny because, like, I would have had two, two, my two grandparents, one of them was definitely like granny, like, do you know what I mean? Like, she meant business, she was granny, and the other one was nana, like, you know what I mean? So I can totally get where you're I'm exactly the same. I had a nana who made pavlovas and gave us a fiver, or actually a tencil cut purple. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But grandmother, as she's known, or mud, was not that kind of granny. You know, there was no cake making. There was, but, which is not to say she wasn't warm. I mean, Mm. she was a fantastically warm grandmother. She was the kind of grandmother you can climb into her bed if you have a nightmare. Um, And, you know, she, what I find amazing as a child is, I don't really remember her work being a big thing. So it was there in the house. I do remember her writing on a, uh, wooden board in bed. Wow. So she'd like to stay in bed in the mornings and, and she'd set one of the, you know, those wooden tray yeah. tables over her knees. And my 
her husband, my step-grandfather, would bring her up pots of tea and she'd write away. But, you know, there was no edict to be quiet around okay. her because she was writing. So, you'd, you know, we'd be tumbling in and out of the room. And, um, you know, she took her work very seriously, but I don't think she took herself very seriously, which is a nice... Maybe a very womanly way to be a writer. Oh, totally. Totally it is. And I was going to ask you, like, was she that type of grandmother that would be like, okay, gather around everybody for a story? Or was her writing for, I suppose, financial or for herself? Or did she tell you stories? Well, everything was a story. And that's not just her. That's, Mm. you know, her daughters, my mother and her sisters. And so when I get asked about, you know, writing, going down through the family, because my cousin Alice is a novelist as well. Of course, yeah. My aunt Liz was a poet. You know, there's a lot of it. And I think, you know, in the same way that some families are doctors and everybody's used to the stethoscope in the handbag and that's just normal in our family telling stories was normal. So it wasn't that there was a delineation between the writing and the storytelling. It's Mm. just everything was a story. And you could see her interest in character. You know, as children, I remember, kind of being judged in a way that somebody who's a student of character will judge people. You know, Mm. I remember my cousin Adam at one stage going out around the field and getting loads of nettle stings, and he didn't cry, he didn't complain. And it was only when somebody saw the stings on his legs that uh, we noticed and that became a story, yes, which was an illustration of his character. I remember feeling very jealous that he had been awarded such a medal of honour for his courage. Yeah. And that story would have been told over and over again. So, you know, people's actions, the things they displayed about themselves and their behaviour were noted yeah. and turned into stories. And I mean, oh my God, just listening to you there, you create such a picture. I can visualise this little boy with all these nettle stings running in. But you yeah. know, like, like it's, it's obvious that you were absolutely meant to be a writer, that it's in the blood. But did you, did she know that you were going to be a writer? Did you write during her lifetime? Did that ever come into the, because I mean, she passed away no. in the 96, so maybe. Yeah, no. I, she died in 1996. I was 26. I'm the oldest grandchild. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alice would have been about 10, I think, when she's died. Alice and I are, are bookends in the family. I'm, yeah. I'm the oldest grandchild and she's the youngest. Um, no. And I don't think I would have dared to write when she was alive. Oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, people always talk about <laughs> imposter syndrome. I've yeah. talked about it a lot myself. Women always talk about, this isn't imposter syndrome. When you go back to read her work, it's so good. I was yeah. right to be terrified. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah, and you know um, that that brings me though nicely to you know her you know her work is now getting the appreciation it, it deserves. But I mean, for so long it was really underappreciated here. You know, I mean, I know I you know so. she won awards and and she did garner you know attention here and there. But it, really, it was internationally more so than than nationally that she got the recognition. Did that bother so her? Right. Did it bother ye? Well, you're so right. You know, I think in every writer's life, there's ups, you know, there's there's peaks and troughs. I mean, the time in the 1950s and 60s when she was a widow, um, mm. before she married again, when she was raising her girls and everything, I think she did enjoy a lot of recognition. She was definitely part of that group of Irish writers. They were her friends, Frank mm. O'Connor, John McGahan, um, who was younger than her, uh, you know, Kavanaugh. It was a small group, but I think the difference with her is she wasn't in the pub because yeah. she was a young widow with teenage children, you know. Mm. So she wasn't really free to go to the pub. So for me, that was quite radical about her life when I look back on it. I'm not sure she would have been aware of that at the time. She cooked dinner for people instead in her muse in Dublin, and it became a real centre for writers to gather. 
Um, Recognition-wise, in those years, there was massive international recognition. Mm. I mean, you know, we've recently um, given her archives of letters to UCD and they're there for academics who are interested. That's um, uh, very recent, only in the last year or two, isn't it? Only in the last mm. year. And, you know, it's extraordinary to go back through those letters and read, yeah. you know, J.D. Salinger writing to her, telling Amazing. her he admires her work mm. and um, Eudora Welty. So I think you're right. There was absolutely widespread recognition of her work Internationally, especially in America. Yeah. Um, I think there was a period then towards the end of her life. And, you know, part of it is she was getting old. So she wasn't yeah. out there promoting herself. Um, and after she died, there was obviously great recognition. of She became a C, which is, you know, one of the top five awards for the arts. And, you know, there are five elders of the arts in Ireland. And she she was one of them in her yeah. lifetime. Um but I think what followed after that was a strange period. And I remember at some stage seeing somebody writing about her, describing her as a quiet writer. You know, she'd never been banned, which was a mark <laughs> against her. Um, yeah. yeah, although, but, you know, what, her work was quite daring. Story, yeah. Go yeah. on. Well, that's the thing. You read a story mm. like Sarah, which was from the 1940s, about mm. a, a woman who wasn't married and had couple of children by different men in the village. You read this story in the middle of the field. Yeah. And it's kind of mind-boggling how anybody would have described her as a quiet writer. I think it was because women's stories weren't taken very seriously, you know? And then you see she's writing these stories that are as relevant now as they were and she wrote them, don't you think? Oh, t- oh, completely. And I mean, you know, there's there's a couple of things I want to touch on in terms of the writing. I mean, you 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 spoke about her her first husband William. I mean, his death he had a huge impact on her and and her work. I mean, did you hear much from your own mother about what life was like once he had passed away? That must have been so so challenging. And you know, she really was at that stage going, oh, that this writing, I need to make money from this writing. Yeah, I think the trauma of William's death, my mother was 10 and my Aunt Caroline was only a baby. And I think Mary, grandmother, was very traumatised by his death. Uh, And I know that because they didn't really speak about it. My mother Mm. never spoke about it. And this is in a family who talked a lot. Yeah. So sometimes you can measure the trauma by the things that aren't said. Um, Mary really had very hard times after that. And there was huge pressure to earn, to bring in the money. She was supporting her own elderly mother as well. Okay, right. So the New Yorker contract, which actually she was introduced to the New Yorker by Salinger, would have been really just an absolute financial mainstay. The New Mm. Yorker paid very well then, as they do now. So she she was contracted to write them and wrote over a dozen stories for them in the next 10, 20 years. And my mother remembered, you know, the cheque from the New Yorker would come in and, and grandmother would say, come on, we'll all go to Dublin and get shoes. OK. Um, it was but a big it'd be deal. to ban Thomas's, you yes. know. Yes, OK. Um, <laughs> even <laughs> they would have been living on the breadline for months, you know. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And I think, you know, it's amazing to think that now, that making a living as a writer is not easy. But now as it was then. And to think that she did that from her desk in the Abbey Farm in Mead, I find that amazing. I mean, there's so many things that I find in her to admire now, looking back on her life, that I think are just amazing. I mean, she sat there and she wrote these stories and she brought in the money and she supported her girls and her own mother by her writing. I mean, no wonder feminists love her, you know. I mean, she... Yeah, well, that's it. You know, she wasn't really an overt feminist. No. She was a political person at all. No, she wasn't, no. Maybe that's why, you know, she wasn't waving 
waving any slogans around. I think in a way because she was too complex a writer to do that. She yeah. was a storyteller and her stories are always complex. I mean, even this story, which in a way is a Me Too story in the middle of the field. It is a Me complex. Too story. I, do you know now that you say that the penny totally has dropped with regards to that? And, you know, this is, um, I should mention, this is reimagined in, in a brilliant production by Blood in the Alley Theatre. It's touring. It's beginning the tour this week, Dublin, Cork and Meath. But it's pretty, pretty true to the story it's pretty much word for word, isn't it? It is word for word. Okay. It's an amazing thing Joan Sheehy has done with this story because she has taken Mary Lavin's words, not just the dialogue, but also the author's uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's performed word for word. It's only an hour long. Which, okay. uh, you know, I'm sometimes terrified of theatrical productions that are very long, so it's worth telling people, don't be scared, it's only an hour. Um, and it's just beautiful and um Kathy Rose O'Brien, who plays the character of Vera, which really is Mary Lavin, mm. the widow on her own in the in the house in the middle of the fields, who's frightened at night. I mean, it's such an evocative story. Oh, it's such and an evocative story. I remember seeing this in Belinter House um, and it was really, really small room, very kind of small audience a couple of years ago. And it's claustrophobic. It's evocative. It's so tense but then there's this like surge of passion like there's there's so much going on and this is why Mary Lavin is so important because she not only created strong female characters but she dared to write about female sexuality and the complexities uh, that that arise within all of that because as you rightly say this is totally a Me Too story as well. Well, that's exactly it. And I think com- complexity is is the word you use there and it's key. You know, I mean, this story is actually like a play. Mm. You know, it's it's it all takes place within a small space of this doorway and hallway with the fields around and the dark falling. And she's nervous and this farmer calls to the door and he's supposed to top the, the grass for her the next day. Yeah. But he's coming to tell her he can't. And, you know, every woman has been in that situation. You open the door, it's late at night. She hasn't. Her hair is down, so she mm-hmm. feels kind of exposed and she's in her nightdress and she's in her robe. And he's taking advantage of her. First of all, it's dark, so she feels vulnerable. And second of all, he's coming to tell her that he's not coming to cut the grass after all, that he's put somebody else before her. So you have this amazing complexity straight away where she feels vulnerable, but she fights back because she's mm-hmm. not having it. She says, no, no, you agreed to do this for me tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I- I'm not having you putting somebody else before me. So straight away, there's never anything simple with her. And you end up with this, as I say, me too kind of situation. Yeah. But then she moves beyond it. So always with her, I think, she goes somewhere that you're not expecting. Oh, she does. She does. And and that's that's the beauty of, like you say, it's such a simple story in some ways, in the sense that there's this guy, he comes to the door, he's promised her something, he's now going back on the promise. But it's everything that's always as well untold that goes between them which is is so so fascinating about this piece I mean no wonder no wonder they've chosen this particular work uh, to explore absolutely and uh, the the tour is going to arrive um, rightfully back in County Meath which of course Mary has uh, such huge connections to did she spend most of the the rest of her life in Meath uh, uh, Kathleen? Yes Um, she was born in Bective House as Mm. I say and then uh, when she got married uh in around 1942, I think, she built her own house on a, on a hundred acres that I think she was gifted by her father mm-hmm. on the edge of Beckett House. Um, and it was the most amazing farm looking out. People will 
be familiar with it, looking out over the river, Lecter Abbey was actually on the 100 acres. So right. she owned that site. She ended up giving it to the OPW um, because she was worried about maintaining it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a beautiful site, and this is where the story is set. And she did. She she lived in the Abbey Farm. They farmed there. They farmed cattle there. Um, but she always had a muse in Dublin, which she bought when the girls um, were going to school and college. And she kind of came up and down to Dublin uh, a okay. lot. But yeah. Bective, I mean, Bective was her home always. I mean, you know, a lot of the stories are set in Bective. Some of them, the early stories, some of them are set in Aspen Rye, where she, where she spent her early childhood uh, among her mother's people. Mm-hmm. But pretty much everything else is set in Bective yeah. and some, some in Dublin, the widow stories. So yes. you know, her work is hugely autobiographical. Oh, hugely, absolutely. And how do you think she would feel now about this great celebration and appreciation of her work? Like, how would she feel about seeing a production like this being brought to the to the stage? Oh, I think she'd be thrilled. And I think especially to see it brought to Bective would mean so much mm. to her. I mean, Bective was where her heart was, you know. And I think that would mean so much to her to see it take place. To my mother and sisters, they're all gone, sadly, now. But oh, I think it would mean so much to yes. them to see this production literally come home, you know. Um, it's very emotional for us. It's very moving. Um, and we're all going to go and see it, my, my cousins and I. And uh, it's just an amazing, an amazing development that this is going to be staged right looking over the Boyne there at Bechtel Bridge Oh, it really is. And, you know, I'm I'm excited to see it myself. Kathleen, I could talk to you all day about this incredible woman. I really could. Thank you so well, much. Oh, maybe we'll do it again. There's oh, we will. Say, but you're so good to have me on to talk about her. Thank- I know there's huge interest still in her out there, which is which is fantastic. You know, uh, 20, uh, nearly 30 years after her death, which yeah. is just marvellous. It really is. And long may that continue. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for joining me today. Tickets are available for this. Uh, it is called uh, In the Middle of the Fields, Bringing Mary um, Lavin to Life and it's available via Eventbrite. So it's touring at the moment in West Cork uh, as part of the Fit Up Festival and then it's going to Dublin's Richmond Barracks uh, from July 18th to the 29th, finally coming back to her home place in Bechtel Mead uh, from August 1st to the 5th. So you can get the tickets eventbrite.ie Bringing Mary Lavin to Life in the Middle of the Fields. That's where you can search there when you go into Eventbrite and uh, yeah it's going to be one of those kind of uh, fantastic productions and as Kathleen says there at home in County Meath overlooking that fantastic landscape absolutely brilliant The 11 to 1 show